Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians, Strength in Weakness. Good morning, everyone. Please open in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 12. Here at Whitefields, we like to study through books of the Bible on Sunday morning. We're currently going through the book of 2 Corinthians in our study titled Strength in Weakness. And um, today we come to chapter 12, which is really kind of the pinnacle of the book. So I'm excited to study this with you. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us through your word and you've given us your spirit to help us understand and apply these things in our lives and to bring about transformation that only you can accomplish. And so, Lord, we we avail ourselves to you during this time. We give you our attention. We give you our hearts. We ask that as we hear your word, Lord, you would speak to us through it and that it would have its full effect in our lives, Lord, that you would use it to change us, transform us, and make us into the people you would like us to become. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was the summer after her high school graduation. She was getting ready to go off to college and pursue a career in athletics. Now, she had been voted the best athlete in her entire senior class. Her family was an athletic family. Her dad had even competed in the Olympics as a wrestler. He was later inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. And for their family, really, sports was everything. And she was carrying on that legacy. In high school, she won medals for her efforts as a competitive swimmer. She was a star tennis player. She was a great diver, and she was excited to begin her college athletic career. But on that day in late July, just a few weeks before she went off to college, she was out swimming with some friends in the bay near where they lived, and Johnny misjudged how deep the water was, and she she was performing a dive called an inward pike, but she was unable to pull out the pike before she hit the bottom of the bay. And as her head hit the sandy bottom of the bay, her arms and her legs went limp immediately. And her friends pulled her limp body to the shore. And even though she couldn't feel her arms and legs, Johnny was sure that it was just a matter of time, through some therapy perhaps, through some time, uh, she would regain feeling in her arms and legs. But as time went on, the realization set in that this paralysis was permanent. She had damaged some vertebrae in her neck, and she became a quadriplegic, totally unable to move her body from her neck down. All her hopes of being able to play sports again were gone. I mean, it was incredibly devastating. You can imagine, if she wasn't an athlete, then who was she? If she couldn't use her body, then what was the point of living at all? And after months of therapy, the only thing she wanted was to die. The only hope that she had was that some people in her family had told her, well, maybe Jesus can heal you. And so Johnny started reading the Bible and looking at all the passages which talk about how Jesus healed people. She was particularly drawn to the stories of how Jesus had healed people who were paralyzed. 
There's one story in particular that caught her eye in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, where we read about a, how a group of people brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus, carrying him on a mat. But because the house where Jesus was at was so full of people, they were unable to get in, so they climbed up on the roof. They removed the roof tiles. They lowered their friend down, and Jesus saw their faith, it says, and he healed their friend. And the man walked out of that place, carrying his mat in his arms, walking out on his own two legs and praising God. Well, that's not actually the end of that story, by the way, in Luke chapter 5. But that's as far as Joni read, or at least what she paid attention to. And so she began seeking out all the churches in the area where she lived that were holding prayer and healing services. She sought out faith healers, and she began asking her family members to take her to these gatherings so she could be prayed over, so she could get healed. And as she went to these gatherings, many of these faith healers told her that in order to be healed, she needed to confess her sins. And so she said she confessed more sins than she ever knew that she ever committed, right? She just confessed as much as she possibly could. And many times they would anoint her with oil and they would pray over her in the name of Jesus. And yet despite these prayers and despite these efforts, Joni's arms and legs never regained their responsiveness. She had been such a strong athlete, but now she was trapped in this body that had no strength at all. And she required help and assistance even to do just the most basic things. She literally couldn't even take care of herself at all. And she had prayed. She had prayed. She had asked God to heal her, and yet God had not answered her prayer. And she began to question what kind of God would do something like that? What kind of God would refuse the prayer of a paralytic girl? And at one point, she even decided if she couldn't be healed, then she wanted to die. But you see, she couldn't even do that for herself. She couldn't do anything for herself. And so every day, her sister would sit her up in her wheelchair and put a Bible in front of her, and she had a stick that she would use with her mouth to turn the pages. And so she just started reading the Bible. And at one point, she read that story in Luke chapter 5 again, but this time she noticed something that she had previously overlooked when she had read it before. And that was this, that before Jesus healed that man who was paralyzed, Jesus had told him, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus had asked a question of those who were in the house listening to what he said. He said, which is harder to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? What Jesus was saying is that it's actually easier for him to heal someone's body than it is to forgive their sins. You see, because Jesus, as God come to us in human flesh, was the creator of the world. For him to fix a broken body was no more difficult than it was for him to place the stars in the sky just by speaking a word. He had brought everything into creation. But in order for him to forgive sins, that was no easy effort. That work of redemption and salvation required Jesus' body to be broken and his blood to be spilt. And Johnny realized in that moment that maybe God had a purpose in not healing her from that paralysis. And for many decades, over five decades now, Johnny Erickson Tata has been used by God in incredible ways to preach the gospel and to help those who are struggling with disabilities. She was part of the council which created the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, and she has shared the hope of the gospel with literally millions of people around the world. And when she was asked if she could go back and do it all over, and not take that dive that day, and not have been paralyzed for the rest of her life, she said, 
No, actually, she wouldn't go back and change everything. She no longer wishes, she said. She no longer wishes that that accident had not happened to her because now, looking back, she actually thanks God for not healing her because, she said, her disability is the single greatest thing that God has used in her life for her good and for his glory. Now, how is it that Johnny could say something like that? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, we come to what is perhaps the pinnacle of the book of 2 Corinthians. And here in this passage, we're going to see the reason why Joni can say what she said about her disability and why you can have hope and encouragement in the face of your weaknesses, struggles, and trials that you face in your life as well. The title of today's message is God's Strength in Our Weakness. And here's what we're going to see in this passage as we study it today. We're going to see this, that our weaknesses provide opportunities for us to grow in faith and learn to rely on God's strength rather than our own. So that's kind of our summary statement. It'll also be our outline for as we study our way through this passage today. So I'd love it if you're taking notes, so you'd write that down, maybe take a photo of it. Take this thought with you as you go today as you remember what we studied here today. But here's what it is one more time. Our weaknesses provide opportunities for us to grow in faith and learn to rely on God's strength rather than our own. Let's break that down into a few parts and use it as our guide for studying these verses. First of all, let's talk about our weaknesses. Paul says here in chapter 12, starting in verse 1, I must go on boasting, though there's not much to be gained from it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. See, there was a crisis in the Corinthian church. This crisis was caused by a group of people within the church who believed that they should be in charge. They should be the ones with power and control in the church. And they were vying for that power and control there in the church. They were self-appointed leaders. And this group of self-appointed leaders, they considered themselves to be superior to everybody else in every way, including the leaders of their church and even the apostles themselves. And in their efforts to assert themselves as the true leaders of the Corinthian church, they had even started a smear campaign against the Apostle Paul. And one of their big criticisms of Paul was that they said that Paul was weak, that he was a weak person, both physically and especially spiritually, he was weak. Unlike them, who they claimed that they were strong. So they said, look, why do you want to follow somebody like Paul? He's weak. Just look at him. His appearance is unimpressive. As a speaker, he's boring. His life is a mess. He's constantly sick. He's always got bad things happening to him. But we, on the other hand, they said, we have it all together. We're dynamic speakers. To put it simply, we're winners and Paul's a loser. So why would you follow him? Why wouldn't you follow us instead? Generally, Paul the Apostle, though, you know, he understood what it means to be a leader. To be a leader means this. People will always uh, talk bad about you behind your back and criticize you if you're a leader. You just got to know that haters are going to hate and you got to be like a duck, right? And just let, let it flow off your back like water. Paul knew that. And that's why, in general, Paul didn't feel the need to like respond to or defend himself whenever anybody criticized him. But in this case, Paul did feel that it was necessary 
to respond to these accusations, to refute the things that these people were saying against him, even though he felt awkward and uncomfortable having to defend himself and kind of toot his own horn and say all the things that he was good at and say, no, well, actually, I'm not like that, etc. He felt awkward and uncomfortable saying those things, but the reason he chose to do it in this case was because there were people who were, these people who were vying for control and power in the Corinthian church, they were actually preaching a different gospel. They were preaching a false gospel and they were leading people astray. And Paul felt that he couldn't just stand by and let this happen. He needed to do whatever it took to convince the Corinthian Christians not to follow these people. In this case, that meant doing something that felt awkward to him, which was defending himself and responding to these accusations. And so that's what Paul's been doing here in this letter, particularly in these last few chapters. He's been responding to the claims of those who said that he was weak spiritually. And what Paul's been saying is, first of all, I don't think I'm as weak as as these people say I am. But you know what? Even if I am weak, I'm not afraid of being weak. In chapter 11, Paul gave a list of some of the things that he had gone through for the sake of the gospel, which had really brought him to the end of himself, had brought him to the end of his own strength and ability to endure the hardships and and difficulties that he endured. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of those things. I'm not ashamed that I came to the end of myself in those instances. In fact, those are the things that I boast about most Because it was in those times, those times when I came to the end of myself, when I reached the limits of my strength, those were the times when I experienced God's strength, God's power in my life as I learned to rely on Him because I didn't have anything left. I didn't have what it took to make it through those situations. Those were the times when I learned to experience and rely upon God's strength and power in my life in the most powerful and meaningful ways. It reminds me of something that Paul said at the very beginning of this letter. Do you guys remember in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, Paul was telling the Corinthians about something he experienced during his travels in the province of Asia. And he says, you know what happened, guys? He said, look, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despised of, we despaired of life itself. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Friends, let me tell you the truth here. It's when you reach the end of your own strength. It's when you reach the end of your own strength that you will really begin to experience God's strength and God's power at work in your life. I like what Johnny Erickson Tata says about this. Here's what she said. She said, maybe the truly handicapped people are the ones who don't realize how much they actually need God. Because God always seems bigger to those who need him most, and weakness causes us to need him more. Well, another area where these people were criticizing Paul, these would-be leaders in Corinth were criticizing Paul, they were claiming that Paul was weak and they were strong in the area of spirituality. Specifically, they claimed that they often received visions and revelations from the Lord. He said, Paul, he's always talking about the Bible and stuff, but we receive visions. We have visions and revelations from God. Paul doesn't have things like that. You should follow us instead. And Paul says, oh, okay, 
You want to talk about visions, eh? Let's talk about it. Look at verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Paul is speaking here in the third person. He says, I know a guy, right? But the guy he's talking about is actually himself. Even though he's speaking in the third person, we know that Paul is actually talking about himself. And that we know that because in verse 7, if you look down there, Paul makes it clear that he's talking about himself. That he is the one who had this vision that he's about to talk about. So why doesn't Paul just say, I had a vision? Why does he say, well, this guy I know had a vision? Why does he talk about himself in the third person? It could be that the reason Paul talks about himself in the third person is because he's continuing the sarcastic tone that he was using back in chapter 11. Do you remember that? Paul was using a lot of sarcasm in the passage which we looked at in our last study. So it could be that he's using that same sarcastic tone, kind of like, oh, you guys want to boast about your visions? Okay, well, I know a guy who actually went to heaven. And you know who that guy was? It was me, right? Okay, maybe that's what he's doing. Could be, maybe even likely that that's what he's doing. It's also possible that the reason Paul tells this story in the third person is because he isn't trying to bring glory to himself. His whole point in telling the story is actually not to bring glory to himself as, as the other, you know, people, the would-be leaders in Corinth were doing. They were always trying to bring glory to themselves through the stories they told. But Paul says, I don't want to bring glory to myself. And in fact, the reason he's telling the story is to talk about what happened after the vision, which we'll get to as we work our way through the text. But he says here, look, 14 years ago, I had this experience in which I was caught up to the third heaven. Now, the third heaven, all that means is this. In the ancient world, they had this kind of way, kind of a non-scientific, folksy way of talking about different layers of heaven, if you will. And here's how they understood it. You know, like the sky, the atmosphere, the blue sky, like the place where airplanes fly, they would refer to that as the first heaven, right? The atmosphere. And then the second heaven, they considered to be the area like where the moon and the stars are, maybe what we would call outer space. But the third heaven, they understood that to be not necessarily a geographical location, but the place where God dwells, right? The dwelling place of God, perhaps the place where those who die in faith go when they die. And so Paul is saying, I was caught up to that place, the presence of God, heaven, as we think about it in regard to paradise, which is actually what he identifies it as in verse 3. He was caught up to paradise. If you remember when Jesus was on the cross, the thief next to him, they started speaking and Jesus said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise, right? In heaven. So that's what Paul's saying. I went to that place, paradise. So was this, vis was this a vision that Paul had or did Paul actually go to heaven? He says in verse three, whether this was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. So Paul himself isn't even sure whether this was a vision or whether he actually went to heaven. Maybe he actually was taken to heaven, or maybe it was just a vision like what the prophet Isaiah had in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Well, the timing of this is pretty interesting, though. He says it was 14 years ago. Now, if you do the math and the timeline of Paul's life, which in those 14 years means that it was after Paul's conversion, and it would have been during his time as during his missionary journeys. 
And so there are a lot of people, you know, they read the book of Acts and they try and say, well, when could this have taken place? And there are some people who, who like to kind of postulate that maybe this coincides with an event that took place during Paul's first missionary journey when he was in a city called Lystra in modern-day Turkey. And when Paul was there in Lystra, what happened is he got attacked for preaching about Jesus, and people stoned him to death, or at least they thought he was dead. They threw rocks at him until his body stopped moving. And so some people kind of wonder, maybe this vision happened at this time. The timing seems to work out. Maybe Paul had a near-death experience where he went to heaven. Or maybe not, right? We don't really know. Maybe it was just a vision. But either way, Paul says, what's even more significant to me, and I think should be significant to us as we read this, notice this. He had this, this incredible vision of heaven, or maybe he went to heaven. I don't know. But it was 14 years ago, and he never told anybody about it, right? This is like the first time he's talking about it, which is interesting. Because nowadays, whenever somebody says they went to heaven, they write a book, they go on tour, and they sell the movie rights and try to make a lot of money. Paul wasn't in this to make money. He actually never told anybody about it. He just kept it to himself. And even now, he's only kind of like reluctantly telling the Corinthians about it out of necessity, so Paul has this sense of humility, this sense of reverence, this sense about the holiness of God in what he saw. And so maybe you're wondering, right? Okay, Paul, you went to heaven. Tell us what it was like. So Paul says in verse 4, I heard things there that cannot be told, which no man may utter. Well, thanks a lot, right? Now, now I guess we just have to wait and find out. All right, well... You can imagine, though, that having had this vision, this glimpse of heaven, Paul must have had this kind of in the back of his mind for the rest of his life. You can imagine how this vision, this glimpse of heaven, what awaited him, this glimpse of it, how it must have sustained Paul through all of the hardships and trials that he faced for the rest of his life for the sake of the gospel. When he faced opposition and trials, when he faced imprisonment and even death, this vision of heaven would have always been there in the back of his mind, and it would have shaped the way he lived for the rest of his life. Rather than seeking to have his best life now, right, Paul would have been very much aware that his best life was the one which was yet to come because he had gotten a glimpse of it. He had seen what awaited him, just a small glimpse of it, and it was glorious beyond what words could express. But then Paul says this in verse 5. He says, On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. This is interesting because Paul's talking about himself in both cases. But notice that when he's talking about this glorious vision he had, he speaks in the third person. But when he talks about his weaknesses, then he talks in the first person. He says, this is me. He says, though, in verse 6, though, if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think me think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, Paul's saying, look, this is all completely true. I experienced it, and yet I don't go around boasting about this vision I had or this experience I had. Instead, I would much rather talk about my weaknesses. What? Like, why? Why would you rather talk about your weaknesses? Well, again, that gets us back to our sentence. Our weaknesses provide opportunities for us to grow in faith. You see, this is so interesting. People here are criticizing Paul for being weak, and yet he says, look, 
I've had greater visions and more profound spiritual experiences than any of these guys will ever have in their lives. But you know what I really want to talk about? You know what, what really gets me excited is talking about my weaknesses. Because my weaknesses have provided me with the opportunity to grow in my faith and for me to experience God's power in my life. And now Paul's going to tell us about one of his weaknesses in verse 7. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You see, there would have been a temptation for anyone who had gone through an experience like this to become conceited or, or to think that they were superior to others. And Paul knows that he himself is not immune from that temptation. And so in order to keep him humble, God had given Paul a thorn in his flesh. A thorn in the flesh, this was some kind of affliction or ailment that Paul had. It's possible that this is something that other people knew about. Perhaps they could even see it when they looked at him. And certainly it caused some people to think less of Paul because he had this affliction. Now, Paul doesn't tell us what this thorn in the flesh was exactly. But the majority of scholars would say that because Paul emphasizes that it was a thorn in his flesh, that it means it was some kind of physical ailment or affliction. It might have been something to do with Paul's eyes. We know that in his letter to the Galatians, he mentions that there was something wrong with his eyes. Or maybe the problem with his eyes was just a symptom of an even greater ailment or problem or medical issue that he had. But whatever the thorn in the flesh was, it wasn't enjoyable. It wasn't fun. He uses that word thorn. Sometimes when we think of thorn, you might think of like a prickly bush. But that word thorn, it can refer to very long thorns, and it can even refer to a tent stake, like the stakes that the Bedouins would use in the desert that are about 10 inches long and made of iron. So in other words, it's a tent stake, not a thumbtack. He says that this thing, it was like a messenger from Satan to harass me, or in some translations, to buffet me. That word harass or buffet, it means to punch with fists. He's saying this thing was like, it was like it was punching me in the face. It was beating me up. And notice what he says there in verse 7. He says, though, but this thorn in the flesh, it was given to me. That's important, notice, because he doesn't say it happened to me or it came upon me just by chance or on its own. No, he says it was given to me. Who was it given to him by? Who gave it to him? It was given to him by God. That's surprising. Think about that for a moment. It's incredible. Paul understood that this thorn in his flesh wasn't just something that happened to him, but it was something that was given to him by God in order to accomplish something in his life. In other words, it was a gift, albeit a painful one, and one that he didn't really enjoy. How many of you have ever received a gift that you didn't really want? I know I have, right? Sometimes somebody gives you something uh, as a gift and you don't like it and you don't want it, but you can't really get rid of it. Well, that's how Paul felt about this thorn in the flesh that he had received. He hated it. It was beating him up. It was like a tent stake was being pounded into his body. And yet over time, Paul came to realize that this affliction was actually God's gift to him 
because of what it accomplished in his life. Now just stop and think about that for a moment. I wonder if there isn't some area of your life where you feel attacked, beat up. Maybe it's something that just really hurts emotionally or physically. Is it possible that God wants to use that pain to accomplish something important and profound in your life? That was certainly true of the Apostle Paul, and it may be true of you as well. Paul says there in verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. See, Paul prayed about this issue multiple times. And he prayed passionately. He didn't pray half-heartedly. He prayed passionately. He pleaded with the Lord. He begged God to take this thing away from him, to give him relief. And yet Paul's prayer was not answered, at least not in the sense that he hoped it would be, not in the sense that God removed this thing from his life. Why? Why didn't God answer his prayer? Was Paul praying wrong? Was he not praying hard enough or good enough? Did he not have enough faith? The answer is no, that's not what happened. That's not why. It was something bigger that was going on, which we'll see as we move on. But it brings us to the final part of our sentence. Our weaknesses provide opportunities for us to grow in faith and learn to rely on God's strength rather than our own. In verse 9, he says this, But he, God, said to me, Paul says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's prayer was answered, but it wasn't answered in the way that he hoped it would be. God said no to Paul's request, but instead God gave him something better instead. Rather than taking away the problem, God gave him his grace to endure it, and Paul got to experience God's power in a way that he never could have otherwise. You see, throughout the Bible, we see that God loves to accomplish his work through weak people. Have you ever noticed that? Like, like when God wanted to liberate the people of Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt, he called a man named Moses to lead the people. But you know, the thing about Moses is that he had a speech impediment. And God called Moses, this guy with a speech impediment, to go and be his mouthpiece, his representative, his spokesperson before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful person in the world at that time the leader of the most powerful country in the world, and God chooses, of all the people he could have chosen, he chooses a guy with a speech impediment. He would have gone there, and he would have looked foolish and weak. Why would God do that? Well, isn't it the same reason why when God wanted to save the Israelites from the Midianites, he took their army and he stripped it down from 30,000, stripped it down to 300. Isn't it the same reason why when God wanted to save the Israelites from the Philistines, rather than choosing for his champion a strong, mighty warrior like Goliath, he chose a young boy named David? Because as Paul wrote earlier to the Corinthians, God loves to use that which is weak and foolish in the eyes of the world to confound that which is strong and wise in the eyes of the world because it's in those cases that God gets the most glory. 
It's in those cases that it's clear that it's God's power at work in the situation and he gets all the glory. And that's why Paul says in verse nine there at the end, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That where it says rest upon me, that literally means to set up camp on me. Think about that. He's like, that's what I want. I want God's power to reside, to set up permanent residence in my life. That's what I want to experience and live out every day. God's power in my life camped out on me. You know, many times we just want God to take away the pain, to solve the problem, to get you out of the situation. But you know what? Sometimes that's not what you need. That's not what I need. That's not what we need. Sometimes the very problem you're seeking to get away from, the very situation you desire to get out of, is the very thing which God is using to cause you to turn to him, to talk to him, to depend on him. You see, in your weakness, you're actually stronger if in your weakness you rely on and turn to and depend on God. When Johnny Erickson Tata was asked if she still prays that God would take away her pain, she said, yes, I do pray that my pain might be removed, but more so, I pray for the strength to bear it, the grace to benefit from it, and the devotion to offer it up to God as a sacrifice of praise. Because we often forget that God is more interested in our souls than in our physical comfort. My soul has become settled and my hope is more anchored in Christ and in heaven because of my disability. That's why Paul says in verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's detractors had accused him of being weak. They looked down on him for his infirmities but Paul said, you know what? I'm not embarrassed about my weaknesses. Rather, I glory in my infirmities, in my weaknesses. Because when I am weak, that's when I am strong. Because it's not my strength, it's God's strength at work in me and through me. And listen, God can do more through my weakness than I could ever do in my own strength fact is, it's only when we recognize and admit our weakness that we can truly experience the power of God in the most important and profound way possible. You see, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the message of God's strength in the midst of our weakness. Here's how Paul explained it in his letter to the Romans. He said, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. When we were utterly helpless, some translations say, when we were weak or when we had no strength, what that means is that we were unable to do for ourselves that which we needed most. Our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins, to be reconciled to God, and to gain eternal life. And yet, when it comes to that greatest need that we have, we are completely unable to fix that problem on our own. We are utterly helpless. But the good news of the gospel is that in the midst of our weakness, God has stepped in. He has intervened with his strength because although we are weak, he is mighty to save. And he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He came in weakness 
born as one of us. He walked our streets. He experienced pain and cold, sorrow and loss. He was betrayed by his friends, and he was ultimately rejected. He was stripped of everything he had. He was beaten, and he was nailed to a cross. Think about that. There is absolutely no greater image of powerlessness and defeat than a man stripped of everything by those in power and nailed naked to a cross. And yet in the midst of what looked like weakness, powerlessness, and defeat in the eyes of the world, God was performing his most powerful work. As Jesus hung on the cross, he was atoning for our sins. Right? He was removing the barrier that existed between us and God. And through his death, which outwardly looked like weakness, Jesus defeated sin, death, and the devil for us. And the way to experience his strength in your life is by confessing your utter helplessness and putting your faith and trust in him. Friends, listen, in a world that despises weakness, like the world that we live in, in a world that despises weakness, God invites us to glory in our weaknesses because our weaknesses provide opportunities for us to grow in faith and learn to rely on God's strength rather than our own. So as you go from here today, I want to invite you to acknowledge your limitations, to admit your weaknesses, and to put your faith and trust in God. And as you do that, you will experience his strength and power in your life. And please bow your heads with me. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.